It's May 7th, 2020. This is Rock. Now, something you can pretty much bank on the entire Iranian global community agreeing upon is the need for unity. There are big challenges and we're stronger together. Strength in numbers, speaking with a common voice, hamamun baham, solidarity. Uh, the only thing is we all disagree on how to achieve unity. In fact, it's no secret to anyone in the diaspora that we're actually not unified at all. The divisions can run as wide as the miles that separate us across the globe. Today, one of the best-known academic voices in the diaspora on post-revolutionary Iran joins me for an entire episode to discuss the roots and reality of our Iranian disunity. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. to episode number seven of Rook. I have both uh, uh, Shaya, as he always is, Groovy Shaya, you know, but I have Reza as well on the That's other side right. of the glass, uh, making a return appearance. Reza and Shaya are here. Hello, guys. Hello, Hello. Uh Sara is also nearby, but socially distanced away from the studio because we can't fit too, too many people here who can, uh, and also stay six feet apart. And Reza, you muscled your way in here, and Sara has to stay. Uh, I know. She's not happy about no. it. Maybe she, we can bring her in for Letters of the Week. Uh, she does the responding to some of the social media stuff. She also does some of our graphics. Um, I, listen, I have to mention this. It's not. I won't do it in Letters of the Week. Or maybe I should. But I, I got a couple of letters. You know how you said. See, you made me feel bad. I I said, تو گفتی in the last episode شای I said امیدوار هستم که خوب هستین and then you corrected me or you supposedly corrected me and said امیدوار هستم I should say امیدوار هستم که خوب باشین right and because I'm insecure about my uh, Farsi fluency which by the way is Ali <laughs> you you, I, I just accepted. Like I was just like, okay, you must be right. And then I started hearing from people saying, actually, what I said isn't isn't incorrect. Actually, I, you go go on the mic. Sorry. Yeah. Actually, I told you that wasn't wrong, but it's more common that we are, because omidvara means you. I'm you, hopeful. Yes, I'm hopeful, and we use. Mozare uh, el tezami. If I want to say, God is getting grammatical <laughs> now he's, right he's now. He's showing off now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's more common that we say omidvara hastam khub bashin ya. But but action. But I'm saying that if if you omidvara hastam ke khub hastin, it's actually almost more formal. It's actually it's it's proper. To, to say be it honest way. with you, I've never heard the word, <laughs> <laughs> but that's correct. Okay. Let's just humor him. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Today we, uh, so anyway, maybe we'll, I, I can actually read those letters uh, later on in, the, in this program. Um, uh, today we also, we, we, I mean, we have this, our Thursday feature, Letters of the Week. I, I speak about that as if it's some produced feature. It's really reading two things that are that somebody said on YouTube, you know, but, or whatever. But uh, hey, you know, we're building this. So. I want to also mention a couple of things. Our website will be up soon. <laughs> I, I like that even you guys are laughing about that as if that's a, um, uh, a but uh, if you're well, I don't really know when our website will be up but if you if you like what you're hearing you can subscribe on YouTube or to our audio pod, podcast uh, if you like the podcast uh, format where it tells you when there's a new episode you can uh, go on iTunes and and uh, if you're not already listening to us on iTunes and and follow us there uh, at the Apple Store or on SoundCloud or Spotify I also want to mention to next week, uh, we have a couple of exciting guests, two well-known actors, actresses of Iranian descent, one currently well-known for appearing in Bollywood, the other for appearing in Hollywood. So we'll be joined by uh, both next week, going from Bollywood to Hollywood via the Persian diaspora. So stay tuned for that next Monday. But right now, today's featured guests. So as we've already made it a tradition on this program of sorts, we, we see a real global community when it comes to the Iranian diaspora, and we want to provide some kind of connective tissue with Rukh. But the truth is, there are great intra-community divisions that are impossible for any of us to miss. In fact, some may say the rift within the Iranian diaspora is greater than ever. So, for example, you're either in the pro-sanctions, pro-Trump, uh, uh, even pro-military action against Iran camp, or you're, say, considered an agent of the Islamic Republic, a sleeper agent, or a regime apologist. And at the far ends of opinion, non-compliance on either side, of course, is not tolerated. Moderates or people who don't fall into either camp are, can be targeted by smear campaigns and character assassination by both camps. So what has brought us to this point? And is there any going back? My guest today is an internationally recognized expert on Iran and Middle Eastern politics. Dr. Merzad Borujerdi is the director of Virginia Tech School of Public and International Affairs. He's written and contributed to a number of books on Iranian society and politics, including Iranian Intellectuals in the West, The Tormented Triumph of Nativism, and Post-Revolutionary Iran, A Political Handbook. Professor Borujerdi is a past president of the International Society for Iranian Studies and the founding director of the Middle Eastern Studies program at Syracuse University. In addition to more than 30 journal articles and book chapters in English and Persian, he's also the editor of Mirror for the Muslim Prince, Islam and the Theory of Statecraft. Professor Merzad Borujerdi joins me from Virginia today. Hello, Professor. Uh, hello, and thank you for having me on the program. Thank you so much for doing this. I mean, before anything else, how are you keeping safe from COVID, uh, the pandemic, and what implications has it had for you as an academic? Yes, yeah, yeah, so I'm staying home and really, um, I guess, I'm working from my Zoom bunker um, <laughs> since I am the, uh, have an administrative role at Virginia Tech. Uh, this, of course, entails a lot of uh, meetings with faculty and other administrators, so... Um, staying put and um, uh, connecting with folks through Zoom 
is the way I'm handling my business these days. Right. Well, I'm glad that you're you're safe and uh, understandably uh, uh, zooming your way through this. Uh, I want to get to the divisions in our diaspora, but first let me ask just a couple of questions about Iranian and American relations, because I know that's somewhat your wheelhouse. Uh, And to be specific, uh, it's been an historic time of enmity, it seems, between the two nations. And I was was thinking about you coming on this show and thinking many times collective humanitarian disasters have had a healing effect on international tensions. Uh, uh, I think a relatively recent example was the 2003 BAM earthquake, which brought in volunteers and aid organizations from far and wide, uh, including a large team from the United States. And, And in this recent pandemic tragedy, when Iran became the regional epicenter of uh, the coronavirus, neighboring foes such as the UAE and Kuwait, not to mention, say, Japan and France, sent generous aid consignments. No such overture from the United States. So is this ongoing animosity simply about the Trump administration and the saber rattling that we all know about? Or is there something deeper going on here? No, I believe it's really much deeper than that. I mean, if you look at the um, turbulent state of U.S.-Iranian relations, uh, we need to go back, of course, to 40 years, Mm -hmm. 41 years ago during which time we have seen seven American presidents and six Iranian presidents at the helm. And of course, these two countries have not had any diplomatic relations with one another since uh, you know, April of 1980, realistically speaking. And, and unfortunately, in the absence of this uh, you know, real face-to-face relationship, um, what, what we have had has been a a great deal of what I call sort of inflated rhetoric uh, by both sides, frankly. You know, on the Iranian side, referring to the U.S. as the great Satan, and um, uh, on on the U.S. part, you know, referring to them as the mad mullahs and and so forth. And this has really uh, set in motion the wheels for a politics of animosity that, as you pointed out, even uh, you know a pandemic of this proportion, unfortunately, has not been uh, able to convince the two sides to sort of abandon their uh, established positions and and try to uh, you know come to some understanding. I I, I would say um, you know we we are really dealing with four decades of psychological scar tissue. Uh, in, in this relationship, um, there, there's no uh, doubt. There's no doubt about that, and and yeah. of course uh, the Engelab, the revolution, and and the implications of that for the last forty years. But when you look at the dissonance between the reaction to say the Bam earthquake and to this this point, seventeen years later, what has happened in that interim period? Right, I think you know um, what what we saw was in the early you know two thousand era uh, when you had. Um, President Khatami in Iran and President, you know, um, Clinton in power, um, we, we saw, you know, a move toward some uh, improvement of their ties, right? And, and uh, of course, with President um, Obama in office, again, a same type of outreach, but one that was particularly centered around the, the nuclear uh, portfolio and not necessarily m- m- much else. But, you know, I, I say, you know, the, the, one of the problems, I think, in this relationship is that the clocks have not been in sync, uh, meaning that when you had people 
you know, in power in one country that were willing to necessarily negotiate with the other side. Uh, there was no willing partner on, on, on the other side. And, you know, we have had to deal with this scenario for decades. And um, a case in point, again, is currently, right, when um, uh, President Trump came to office, of course, uh, he has sort of established his domestic and foreign policy to be the exact opposite of what Obama had tried to you know, accomplish. Right. And surely JCPOA was one of the chief, if not the main foreign policy accomplishment of the Obama administration. So when President uh, Trump started referring to it as the worst deal ever, you, you could see where we were going you know, right. uh, in, in that regard, regardless of what uh, Mr. Rouhani in Iran was willing to do. Um, so unfortunately, that's where we find ourselves at this point, right? Uh, right? Politicians have their own set of preferences. There is domestic constituencies to deal with. And I would say, you know, in the in the tragic case of U.S.-Iranian relations, not only you have uh, geostrategical differences between the, the two sides, but also this type of, you know, personality clashes that have made the situation that much more difficult. And when you talk about personality clashes, you might say, uh, not to be too crude about it, but if, if uh, President Trump is willing to cut New York State loose, he, he's certainly willing to cut Iran, <laughs> Iran loose in terms of any uh, direct aid or, or, or uh, collective response. There's so much to talk about there. Uh, but that isn't the specific focus of why we brought you on. I mean, both countries have been hit hard by the pandemic. There's no letdown in the hostile military posturing in, in the region. I'm I'm interested in the storm raging in the teacup of the Iranian political diaspora, because we can be, as I'm sure you know, very divided against each other. I mean, the sheer mm-hmm. scale of insults and vilifications and blood libel satur- saturating the Farsi cyberspace is, is very high, even by Iranian standards. You, you seem <laughs> like a voice that maybe be able to give us some perspective on both or all sides. What what factors have brought us to this this kind of point of balkanization? Sure, you know uh, the the British philosopher Thomas Hobbes has a very interesting um, sentence. He says, "Mathematics unites men, politics divides them," and I think that's that's truly the case. Um, and because you know we, when we are dealing with politics. Of course, we are dealing with the realm of subjective understandings, emotions, uh, you know, uh, people preferences, ideological blankets or glasses that people put on and, and all sorts of things. So it is it is the nature of politics for people to have you know, different views. In the case of the Iranian diaspora, again, you know, um, when we look back, uh, we will see that the seeds for this type of rift and cleavage really existed from from the uh, get-go, right? Uh, in other words, you had cleavages at first between those who had migrated to the West versus those who found themselves here or in Europe as as refugees. So that was one of the earlier, you know, type of uh, uh, you know cleavages uh, between the two, with the assumption that those who had migrated, of course, were benefiting or were enjoying a better standard of living than those who were fleeing the country, either because of the revolution, Iran-Iraq war, or you, you name it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, politically speaking, we had other differences. In other words, of course, in, in places like, you know, Los Angeles in California, with a large concentration of, you know, uh, Iranian expatriates, uh, we saw the manifestation of these type of rifts 
uh, greatly in the sense that you had really three major camps emerge after the 79 revolution. You know, the, the monarchists who looked to the pre-revolutionary Iran as, you know, with a sense of nostalgia about what Iran was or could have been. And, you know, they, uh, of course, had to, you know, point the finger at those who were, you know, uh, considered responsible for what had transpired in 78, 79. Right. Uh, you, had the, the, you had the Islamists uh, who had just come to power after many, many years of being on the sidelines. And of course, you know, they felt that they were on a very just cause and um, their favorite slogans and so forth have to do with the subservience of the Shah's regime toward the United States, the 1953 coup and, you know, issues of that sort and therefore you know, they had their rhetorical weapons all loaded and ready to go as well. And then, you know, in between, you had uh, smaller camps of nationalists as well as, you know, leftist forces of various persuasion in the Iranian diaspora, which, you know, gradually, I think, were overtaken mm. by, the, by the course of events in Iran, right? So there was a lot of things that was happening inside Iran that I think left its indelible mark on these internal episodes of infighting uh, among the expat you know, community right now. As things ev evolved and as the Islamic Republic consolidated itself you know, a bit more and didn't really have the type of existential angst that it was experiencing in the early days of, of the revolution, certainly you know, the government tried to find you know, people outside Iran who could you know, promote its message, if not necessarily as full-fledged, you know, lobbyists, as, as people who were sympathetic, right, to the cause and the message of the, of the Islamic uh, uh, Republic. And I think this, too, contributed to the rift that we are, you know, witnessing right now. And then I think the other factor that has really been um, supremely important, but maybe on the, on the background uh, um, has been the impact of, of sanctions. So with, with, with the sanctions policy, unfortunately, contrary to what was being said, you know, in the early days when these things were introduced, that, you know, we can have something called a smart sanctions that will only right, right. be impacting a particular group of people. In reality, we realized that this really was not the case, that sanctions ended up being quite uh, imposing a rather blanket you know, fashion, and therefore, you know, your grandmother or my grandmother could also be impacted by it just in the bazaar, right? Mm -hmm. By the price mm -hmm. of, you know, buying a refrigerator, let's say, uh, which had nothing to do with politics and yet was impregnated with this politics of animosity and the sanctions regime that, um, you know, had come into play. As such, and as we had decades after decades of this type of, you know, policies, something happened in the sense that the American political establishment felt that sanctioning Iran, which they viewed as their chief geostrategic rival in the region, right, was, was the best course of action because regime change uh, was certainly not a possibility, realistically speaking, or you had to pay a heavy price. In other words, if Afghanistan and Iraq gave the U.S., you know, a hiccup of sorts. Going to Iran and doing the same type of thing, in my view, will be a cause for massive indigestion. Okay, and therefore, I don't think that was ever part of the game. And therefore, 
sanctions were considered as the most suitable politically acceptable uh, substitute. But why have sanctions? Why? Why have? I mean, I think you've you've sort of answered this, but but why would sanctions in particular divide our own community more? Well, I think it, it, it divides because, you know, again, as, as, as this economic situation in, in Iran deteriorated, the mindset that, you know, successive U.S. administrations subscribed to, and I think, frankly, part of the Iranian diaspora has bought into, was this, that, okay, if we are not going to have boots on the ground, sanctions is the best uh, remedy right. because it is going to make the Iranian regime uh, fragile and weak and therefore susceptible to change because the, the people are going to rise up and bring about the change, right? But this is so, starving the people. This is madness. We shouldn't be, absolutely. we shouldn't be sanctioning the sanctions. Uh, but, right. but let me, let me try this out on you. Do you think, you know, because in, in part of the, I have to tell you, the impetus for developing this, this show, a show in English aimed at the Iranian diaspora is the sheer growth of the diaspora. You know, 40 years ago, this would have been a quaint little program. You know, oh, that's cute, the Iranian diaspora. But as you know, the numbers have grown by the millions, especially in the last mm -hmm. two decades. And it feels sure. like, I mean, my main experience is in Toronto and, and New York, but it feels like the, as Iranians have uh, migrated from Iran in bigger numbers, the divisions from Iran have also migrated or have amplified. Does that, does that resonate for you? Do you think that's true? Absolutely. I think, you know, politics is something like, you know, your, your, your backpack, right? It travels with you. It comes with you. And surely, you know, the fact that, as you pointed out, this massive number of people who have left Iran after 79, first, you know, because of the revolution and the Iran-Iraq war, and then as we saw, for example, after the Green Movement of 2009, and then, you know, more recently, uh, it has come in various, you know, waves. And historically speaking, this is really one of the largest ever migrations that we have seen in Iran's long, long history. Yes. Okay. And therefore, the numbers have, have gone up dramatically. Remember, this was also the migration of the cream of the crop. This was sort of the best and the brightest, right? The ones who had the educational right. or the business skills and, and so forth who were leaving the, you know, the country. You know, so put yourself, for example, in the position of a, a bright 22-year-old or a 24-year-old who has just gotten his BA degree or MA degree, let's say in electrical engineering, whatever, and would face the following scenario that, you know, you cannot find a decent job, you cannot find the, the decent laboratory that you want to do for your, you know, scientific research. Economic difficulties are such that you cannot, you know, afford to uh, marry and, you know, live independently with your wife or husband, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, when, when you face these type of scenarios and you ask yourself, well, you know, I did uphold my part of the bargain. I did what I was supposed to do. Where is the government or the regime's responsibility in terms of, you know, providing X, Y and Z for me? And if, if those things are not there, certainly you are going to be pointing the finger, right? Somebody is accountable for why, you know, uh, you have this type of situation. And that, that person, let's say, decides to come out of the country. They leave Iran. They come to a Western setting where there are already established expatriate communities where the message from them 24-7 is nothing but 
you know, how the mullahs are, you know, responsible for every problem, you know, in the country, and uh, they should not be getting an iota of credit regarding anything. And so we end up with scenarios where you have TV and radio stations that are really sort of ideological mouthpieces for this group or that group, and they're not performing the function that one was expecting, i.e. of giving sort of the objective news and, you know, letting the people uh, draw their own conclusions. Do those ideologies, and and thereby those divisions, then easily or seamlessly get passed through the generations? In other words, I mean, that community you're talking about in Los Angeles, for example, that's not new. They've been there for decades, right? So mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. are we to expect then that the second and third generation diaspora just continues the, the same divisions? And and if so, why? I mean, why, why don't we grow out of it? No, I don't think we are necessarily condemned to do this. Look, I mean, even today, if you compare, you know, the quality of discourse, you know, again, presented in the various TV channels that you get from L.A. with what you're seeing in places like London and so forth, you see a you know, huge difference. I don't think we are condemned to you know, relieve this thing. The, the, the fact is that my children and your children who are you know, sort of born and brought up here, they are not necessarily going to look at Iran through the same lens of somebody who had to flee Iran at a moment's notice, right, in, in the early 80s uh, or, or at the time of the, of the revolution. I think these, this second generation, third generation, it starts to see things from their own lens and not necessarily through the prism or the eyes of their parents, right? So their appreciation or perhaps even a moral attachment to their country of origin is going to be a bit different. Mm. So I'm not you know, pessimistic in the sense of saying, well, this rift is going to stay in perpetuity and you know, we need to live with it. I think really the time has come, especially as sort of my generation starts to pass from the scene, right? And the younger ones are, are taking over to really have much more sort of op- optimistic, much more creative, less uh, accusatory tone right, in terms of what we can do as, as this community becomes more financially capable, as, as they settle down, as they think about, all right, if I, if I have a depth of gratitude or obligation to my country of origin, you know, how can I be providing it in perhaps uh, in, in ways that might indeed be helping the, the citizenry, but not necessarily, you know, a government that I don't necessarily, you know, accept. I think those things become possible, you know, gradually after we, we pass from the inflated, right, a state of rhetoric and animosity that we are experiencing uh, right now. I don't, I don't really see the current situation as, as too uh, uh, promising or, fr- frankly, productive. What about the way others see us? And what impact does that have? Because besides the infighting in, in our own community, the community is has been under attack from anti-Iranian sentiments rising in some countries, including the United States. You spoke to Al Jazeera in an article about the onset of Iranophobia in some circles mm-hmm. in January of this year. Uh, and, and I was thinking about, you know, uh, Professor Nada Makboulet, 
uh, does an amazing job of chronicling the way the Iranian-American community has been seen in re- recent decades in her book, The Limits of Whiteness. Uh, and yep. if I can remember correctly, she she talks about how, you know, pre-1979, pre-Engalab, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty much irrelevant. There's a positive image for those who even know who what Iranians are. Then it becomes mm-hmm. extremely negative post-revolution, the hostage crisis, et cetera. And then there's another uptick in negativity, a massive uptick in negativity after 9-11, ironically, of course, because Iran didn't have much to do with 9-11, you might argue. But but uh, are we seeing that kind of period again? And that would seem paradoxical because one of the beautiful things that's happened, for example, in Canada in, in recent months was the reaction to the, the desperate loss of lives in the shooting of a uh, plane 752, where Canadians really rose and said, these are you know, these Iranian Canadians are Canadians and we see them as ourselves. And, and that was very heartwarming for some of us who've been here sure. for many years. So which one is it? What kind of period are we in now? Right. I think you, you raise a really very important point. Look, as, as you mentioned in the introduction, the subtitle of my first book uh, had the word nativism in it. And, you know, this is really a, a mindset, which I would say the Iranians and the Americans you know, share a lot of. Uh, meaning this this notion that things that are uh, homegrown and domestic indigenous are, are better than you know what it, what comes from outside uh, is foreign uh, you know to us etc. So nativism in the Iranian political context, as I describe in that book, really became, in my view, the uh, plumb ideology that set in motion the wheels of of, of the revolution as intellectuals started to talk about, you know, return to oneself and restoxification or etc. I think in, with the coming to power of, you know, President Trump here, we are seeing the same type of thing, right? This is the return of a nativist, you know, sentiment, that sort of the America first type of notion that whether we like it or not, I'm afraid, considers uh, those of us with strange sounding names, accents, black hairs, and, uh, you know, uh, what have you, right. as not necessarily part of that sort of, you know, circle of trust, right, that part of that um, fabric of, of, of this society. So there is, there is as, as you mentioned in the work of Neda, this, this notion of there is the exteriority assigned to us. It first had to do with the hostage crisis and the edge word and, you know, what the Iranian, Iran's reputation, how it was damaged by that whole terrible you know, hostage crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unfortunately, in politics, whether it was the hostage crisis, whether it is you know, 9-11, whether it's the current team, uh, these type of sentiments are strong. You know, let's forget about Iranians for a moment. Notice about the type of reaction we are beginning to see about China, you know, against yes. Chinese Americans, yes. right? Yes. This is, again, testimonial to the same type of sentiment. The victims might change due to the circumstances, right, to, the, to what the perceived cause. But the nature of that sentiment is there. So, yes, I've, I'm fully with you. What happened in, in Canada was really refreshing, reassuring. It, it brought our you know, common humanity together and, and demonstrated that. Uh, but at the same time, as I said, unfortunately, politics has this tendency, right, to create scapegoats. Yeah. And for the average citizen, often, pointing the finger and blaming those who are somewhat different from the majority has been a favorite way of uh, you know, settling the scores or 
clearing your conscious cheaply by saying it is not our fault. There are really these foreigners who have done this. There is a fantastic book and a documentary that I really highly recommend to your audience. It's called The Faces of Enemy by a gentleman named Sam Keen. When you watch this documentary or you read the book, you know, you really see how this politics of enmity, uh, of how creating self and the other, is really the very stuff of politics. I mean, I don't want to get philosophical about it, but even in philosophical terms, you come across the writing of a German thinker like Karl Schmidt, and he basically says, you know, let's face it, politics divides people into two groups, friends or foes, mm. right? And, it, and, it, and it's as simple as that. But so, what are the policy implications of, of that nativism? Or I should say, what are the implications of policies that come from that nativism? Because with the Muslim ban and the, the suspension of the electronic divers, uh, diversity visa lottery in, in the United States and all the other measures put in place by the Trump administration to prevent the entry of new Iranian migrants, say, to the United States, there can be this sense that no uh, fresh blood, you know, is being introduced to our community in the United States and that this will have an impact over time of somehow diminishing the community. What, what is your take on that? Yeah, so I, I'm afraid, you know, the type of things that President Trump has introduced, like the Muslim ban, etc., and, you know, making the visa requirements, all of those things that much more difficult. I think they are absolutely casebook examples of, of nativist, you know, sentiments. And by the way, let me add in parentheses that when you look at U.S. history, please realize that, you know, this is not something that has started with President Trump. This is a long-established tradition in the U.S. You know, you go back to the 19th century, uh, there was a movement called the Know-Nothings who were saying the same type of things. The, the, the biases against, you know, the Irish, the Italians, migrants to the U.S. again goes, goes back more than a century. So this is a very potent ideological stream that I think President Trump has managed to tap into. And again, we see it play itself out in daily news about how he is referring to the whole coronavirus and, you know, you name it. As far as it's whether it's going to prevent really fresh blood from coming into the country, I'm not sure. Again, it really depends on how long lasting is this going to be? Are there going to be legal challenges to this type of policies in the coming years that they've managed to be successful and therefore, you know, reverse some of these uh, processes? At what point? Will you know we reach uh, the sense that we realize that okay beyond the political rhetoric that you know is coming out of the White House, there are you know certain realities that one has to deal with. Look, you go and take a look at the data that the Department of Education puts out right on the number of people who earn PhDs right, in mathematics. Right, right. Let's say in the United States, they are predominantly people who were, you know, born outside the United States. But that's right? why it's and counterintuitive. That, sorry to interrupt you, but that's why it's counterintuitive. I mean, it may seem naive. I'm sure it'll be seen as naive for me to even ask this, but but Iranian-Americans are one of the most successful migrant communities. As you, you mentioned earlier, you know, best of the best, plenty of high, highly educated doctors, researchers, academics, entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sure. would be fair to say that Iranian-Americans have always been this major source of what's called soft power for the United States, at least in the last half century. So, On the face of it, you know, like why would any U.S. administration want to deprive itself of such leverage? 
Well, you know, again, it's it's a very good question. I would say the the, the mindset, at least the one that you're you know witnessing right now, right, is not necessarily thinking in those terms. I, I wouldn't say it's really a smart statecraft, you know, coming out of the White House in terms of how they how they see these things. And you know, there are there are really daily reminders. I mean, I deal with the scientific realm, right? So I, I am a man who looks at numbers and stats and so forth. To, to draw my conclusion. So, as I said, the Department of Education has these annual surveys that they do of the number of people who, you know, who earn PhD degrees, etc. We have all this data available to us to know. As you pointed out, Iranian-American community along with uh, Indian-American community are two of the most, you know, successful expatriate communities who have you know, come here uh, and, and, and settled down and contributed massively to the betterment of the state of knowledge, et cetera, in, in this country. Indeed, there is a, there is a gentleman who, in California, uh, I, I forgot his name, but he, is, he has uh, doing this fantastic work about you know, putting out data on exactly what has been the contribution of Iranian doctors, lawyers, and, and so forth mm-hmm. in various realms of life. You see, part of the problem that I see, frankly, here is that, and, and you know, we are beginning to change this thing again as this sort of second generation uh, learns the ropes and becomes more, you know, adept in learning the politics of, you know, lobbying, creating NGOs and, and, and the like. Even though we have this massive human capital on the part of the Iranian-American community, I am afraid we have not had those institutional representations or representatives who have really been effective mouthpieces, right, right for, for this type of thing. Sure, we have you know, groups like PAYA and others out there who are, who are trying to do you know, some of these things, but there is, there is really massive amount of work to be done. I live in Washington, D.C., right? This is, this is the land for, you know, lobbies and uh, interest groups and so forth. And, you know, you look at any community, be it the, the Arab community, the Chinese, Koreans, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody has their own sort of effective interest groups that are, you know, advocating for them. We need, we need to embrace this politics of advocacy. You see, I think the mindset on the part of many in the Iranian diaspora for many years was that, you know, our suitcases are ready. We want to go back to yes, Iran yes. when this regime changes. Well, the, the exilic mindset. Yeah, yeah. But, but those situations, you know, it's just, a, you know, a pipe dream, right? It's not happening. So we, we need to set, put down those suitcases. We need to realize that we are here. We are developing roots. And if you allow me, I, I say this as a parenthetical note. Back in 2000, which was the last time I went to Iran, there was a conference where they invited me that the subject of conversation was dialogue with expatriate Iranians. And, you know, many of the Iranian political dignitaries were sitting in the room. Of course, this is during the time of President Khatami, where he was talking about dialogue of civilization. So I read a very critical paper in that conference. And I said, listen, you guys are talking about this ambitious thing about dialogue of civilization. Can you be a bit more modest and start with a smaller dialogue? And that dialogue is with the Iranian expatriate community. If you manage to do that, if you manage to succeed in that, then you can graduate to the higher level of trying to you know, have a dialogue of civilization. And I said, and I said, listen, you're not doing that. You are not, you know, if I'm somebody who left Iran and nowadays I have an 18-year-old son, 
what are you going to do in terms of, you know, a military service exemption for my kid? You are going to tell me that my wife has to come and put on the chador in Iran. Ain't happening, right? You, you want me to come and bring my money and invest in, in the country, but you're not going to give me any type of guarantee regarding the uh, security of my investment. So I said, you are engaging in nothing but taruf. Right. This is this is just pleasantry. And unfortunately, you know, when we compare governments such as, let's say, the one in China or in India, how they have managed to lure back many of their uh, best and brightest. Right. China, believe it or not, the investment that the Chinese expatriates are making in, in China is the largest in the world. Right. India, same type of thing. You know, they have gone and done it. Why? Because they had governments that were far-sighted enough, intelligent enough, that they said, "Okay, They're this welcoming is a human that. capital right. that we have." Right. Absolutely, but we don't see it. But Dr. Morajardi, there, there, there are some high-profile Iranians who you, I'm sure you know, who are vocal advocates of a severance between uh, the United States and Iran. No green cards, no entry, no corporate cooperation between the countries. Do you find that surprising? I frankly do find that surprising. And let me say this again, unfortunately, uh, living in Washington, too, and, you know, having been involved in uh, discussion with U.S. government for the last four decades. uh, Yes, I see this. Unfortunately, it has become a situation where people who, you know, you would expect better off, right, whether they are journalists or, you know, public intellectuals, etc. And unfortunately, everybody has taken on this role of being for or against. And I'm afraid we are shortchanging ourselves. You know, somebody asked me the other day, can you name a few, uh, you know, people who are objective enough for some analysis on Iran without necessarily being, you know, pro or anti regime? <laughs> and and could you? Had a hard time <laughs> coming up with names. <laughs> so, right, you right. know, I mean, that, I, think, I, th- I think that's a tragedy. I, I'm laughing at it, but really it's a, it's a, it's a oh, tragic right. thing because, you know, the, the, the nature of this relationship is so complex, it's so nuanced that, you know, reducing it to a bunch of slogans, right, I don't think is really going to do anyone any service. I mentioned something about my latest book that you were kind enough to mention, yes. uh, this post-revolutionary Iran book. You know, uh, the reason I did this book um, it might be interesting for your audience, and that is the following. You know, I realized, again, having come here and having talked to various folks in the State Department, Defense Department, etc., for the last you know, three decades or so, I realized that their knowledge of Iran in so many ways is really just surface deep, right? They know about a few leading personalities, mm-hmm. but when you ask them more substantial questions, and I did this in one session where I asked you know, the audience, I said, can you guys talk intelligently for five minutes to me about, you know, what do you think is the collective profile of somebody who becomes a mayor, a governor in Iran? And, you know, there was this strange silence in the room because, you know, nobody really had done any type of empirical study. So I said, okay, I'm going to go and reinvent the wheel. So I I wrote this book, which puts together the biographies of 2,300 Yes. Iranian politicians from day one of the revolution up to now. Why? Because I wanted for the first time to move away from this sort of journalistic uh, narrative on Iran and provide hard data 
on you know this many members of the Iranian political elite so that a bright PhD student can go and do some fascinating empirical research about who these people are uh, in addition to the you know 100 tables and so forth that I have assembled in the book so that we have a better understanding of of who these people are, why is it that they do what they do, etc. But you know, again, unfortunately, we have taken the easy way out. It's the it's the dominance of you know rhetorics and slogans and and finger pointing rather than uh, more in depth analysis. Can can I just say you you haven't you're modest when you say you've written a book. That's not just a book. That's a a blueprint uh, of this kind of uh, information and and uh, correctly lauded by uh, so many people uh, in the India in academic circles and the diaspora. Again, that book is uh, for, for people listening. Po- Post Revolutionary Iran: A Political Handbook that came out in 2018. You know, I this whole conversation. I ask these questions, and I have one foot in a camp as well, kind of saying. Should, should we be cutting our own community a bit of slack? Because we live in an age of populism and uh, extreme polarization everywhere in the mm-hmm. world, right? I think of Brexit sure. in the UK. I think of the extreme divisions in France right now. I think of the obvious sure. polarization in the United States. Uh, could it be that the Iranian global community is basically reflecting the same radical polarization uh, of every other community? <laughs> No, that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, it, I don't think the Iranians are any exception. You know, they, they can be impacted by the same uh, dynamics and wave of thinking that, you know, we see in, in other places. Look, you know, uh, notice, for example, you know, again, forget for a moment, Iran. Look what happened when the issue of Syrian refugees came up, right? And what was the reaction in so many European capitals yes. to whether they should be opening their doors to accepting these folks or not? Right. So populism, nativism, etc. These things are on the rise. This is a universal phenomena. And it, it's a very powerful and potent way of thinking that we should certainly be taking it seriously. And yet, when we are speaking of this Iranian diaspora, I think, you know, I hope that uh, we take into account the fact that, again, these are highly educated people, uh, highly skilled people, you know, who have had the luxury of living in some of the freest countries in the world, seeing the shortcomings of uh, how things were back home and how things are here. In other words, I think we can be effective interlocutors in the sense that we understand, you know, these two cultures, right? And therefore, when an Iranian simplifies or oversimplifies or engages in generalizations about what America is all about or Americans are like, uh, you know, we should stop them with the same type of intensity that when when an, an American, yes, again, yes. Uh, passes judgment yes. on, on, on our compatriots. That's true. And, you know, uh, getting back to that Iranian-American community, or even the global Iranian diaspora, there's a sad element to this, where there still seems to be a a, a discomfort with our own identity in parts of the community. So, for example, in 2010, this isn't that long ago, uh, in a U.S. census in the California, only a fraction of the Iranian-American community identified themselves as being of Iranian descent at all. Others chose mm-hmm. to identify as, say, Armenian or Turk or some other eth- ethnicity. Uh, also, there are many uh, Iranians living in the States or elsewhere who describe themselves as Persians, something I remember as a kid after the revolution here in Canada that my parents would say, you know, to kind of, uh, as if to trying to avoid the guilt or 
externally imposed shame of being Iranian somehow, you know. Are you right. disheartened that these patterns continue? Yes, but also as a social scientist, I also understand, you know, what is at play here. Look, there is a absolutely a psychological need, right, for acculturation on the part of many. Therefore, you know, when, when it comes to the census, you know, they can put on the, the check mark based on the white uh, racial category and, and move on and, uh, you know, don't, do not see any need to be more specific about their, their background. Or, you know, as a social scientist, I understand that in Iran, you know, unfortunately, both before and after the revolution, we have not been able to properly address the notion of the various ethnicities uh, that exist in Iran and, you know, uh, thinking of them as part of part and parcel of a bigger whole, right, a bigger group. And therefore, it is natural that, as we see inside Iran itself, uh, manifestation of, of this type of ethnic uh, demands being, you know, voiced in stadiums and the like these days. So this is, this is all understandable. But, but I also want to make another point. You see, an Indian thinker uh, said something about identity that I really has uh, sort of captivated me for, for many decades now. His argument was that identity is like archaeological layers, right? There is one layer on top of the other. So if, if you want to understand who I am as a person or who you are, really what we need to do is we need to scratch the surface. Or better yet, we need to pick up a, a pair of scissors and, and make a cut, right? When, when you make that cut, you realize that what makes any person who they are uh, are sort of a multiplicity of identities, right? You know, whether they are, what is their job? You know, what city they come from? What is their, uh, you know, ethnic background? What is their ideological, you know, standpoint? Are, are they a husband, wife, et cetera, et cetera? And it's really when we have this mental map, right? A, a much more holistic understanding mm-hmm. of what a person is that makes up our identities. I think part of what I see as the challenge facing the uh, Iranian diaspora right now is really uh, uh, the need for some more profound reflections on what are these layers of identity for us uh, and how comfortable are we to be there. There is no reason to you know, want to insist on being a one-dimensional being. Why? Mm-hmm. Right? Why can I not be sort of a hyphenated American? Mm-hmm. Okay? And, and consider that hyphen as actually a badge of honor, as something that gives me an interesting vantage point to be a bit different, to look at things with sort of more of a critical eye. Okay? Um, so remember that one reason in, in, in any society, intellectuals are so important. It's because these are the folks who can stand on the sidelines and take a look, a critical look at what is happening on a day-to-day basis right. and try to theorize what it is that we are doing subconsciously and not necessarily aware of. I think this is the same type of thing that we need to do here. We need this second generation, third generation that is a bit you know, separate from the trauma of 79 and what happened, the warriors, et cetera, et cetera, and really can go about uh, in, in a more objective way thinking about this. I will add this one. You know about the, this camp Ayande, right, mm-hmm, for, mm-hmm. for these younger kids, Iranian-Americans who, who go there. I, I sent my son 
to this camp some years ago when he was a teenager. And I can't tell you what a profound impact this had on him. If before that, before going to this camp for young Iranian-American kids, you know, if I wanted to encourage him to you know, learn more about Iranian history, etc., it was an uphill battle. Mm-hmm. He goes there, thanks to peer pressure or the impact, etc. He comes back and starts asking me all these, you know, interesting questions. Tell me more about what is Zoroastrianism all about, right? I mean, these this were the type of things that, you know, uh, had changed inside of him. Mm-hmm. So uh, as a father, but also as a social scientist, you know, I realized, okay, something really is interesting happened. You know, my son, and I'm sure there are many like him, are responding not necessarily to our inflated rhetoric, right, about <laughs> yes. nationalism and yes. patriotism yes. and so forth, but he's seeing people of his own kind, yes. okay, born yes. and bred, you know, here in the U.S., and yet there is something that is like an umbilical cord, right, yes. that ties them to that country of ours. Well, I'm an example That's of that. I'm an example of that. I've grown up entirely sure. outside of Iran, but I feel mm-hmm. that um, um, uh, umbilical cord. And and, and, and also, uh, you know, I think that we often maybe make the, the mistake of, of thinking that our unity needs to come through politics um, mm-hmm. or idea, ideological unity. And, and in fact, that uh, the cultural ties run very deep, the, whether it's uh, simple things like the way we, we interact with our families or um, uh, cuisine or our, our, mm-hmm. our, our social culture, you know. Uh, and those are the things that you start to discover. Uh, I say this as someone who uh, grew up as a kid in the 80s and hit my teens in the 80s and went deeply into the ethnic closet, you know, not wanting to say I was yep. Iranian because it was scary. There were no other Iranians around people just thought oh terrorist hostage crisis and it wasn't until i i came out of my teens and was in university in the 1990s where i thought wait a minute there's nothing wrong with (laughs) being iranian in fact i love being iranian i've had this imposed on me externally so what what saddens me is when the the divisive political discourse prevents us from being able to come together culturally yeah but you know i think you said something really profound here look Political change, right, is contrary to what people might think, is much, much easier than cultural change. And thanks God for that, right? In other words, you can change a regime through a coup, a revolution, you know, voting, whatever. That, that's easy done. But it is really hard to change the culture of, of, of a country or a community. It's like, you know, you, you have to introduce change with eye drops, right? Um, it's going to be incremental. It's going to be a slow, gradual, and so forth and so on. So I think what, what we have going for us, uh, as you were pointing out, is that there is truly a very rich culture, a very rich language, you know, literary tradition, etc., that can be the building block for this, this generation that can take pride in, in their place of origin, etc. So... Uh, their, their Iranian-ness can, can be something that, again, hopefully once we pass these uh, polarizing time that we are living through, you know, right now, yeah, I think it's something that is going to be a, a, a fantastic uh, cultural reservoir that people can, can tap into, right? And, and um, how fortunate are 
these folks who are, you know, living in diaspora in the sense that, you know, whatever country that they are living in or they were born in, right, uh, has given them something and their country of their birth or the country of their parents' birth, etc., can provide another cultural, uh, you know, capital for them to tap into as well. You know, it, it can enrich us in so many ways. When I see my kids uh, switching from English to Persian, when, when they do not want uh, others to understand what it is that they are saying, you know, I say, God, you know, these guys are well equipped, right, to deal mm. with so many situations that they might be encountering. I love that you uh, you went there in terms of uh, as we end this off because uh, that's exactly where I wanted to go in terms of before before I let you go asking you a question on a more personal level uh, this, sure. th- this this has been such a a difficult year for Iran for people of Iranian descent uh, think of the brutal crackdown on protesters in the fall think of the the near war with the United States the shooting of flight 752 the covid crisis where where is your heart these days as uh, not just another one of us in the Iranian diaspora, but as the guy who literally has written the book on post, post-revolutionary Iran. And and talk about those those seeds of hope that you see for the global Iranian community. I came to the States when I was 16 years old. And uh, so in a way, I, I would say my formative years were spent in Iran. And therefore, it's really hard for me to divorce myself from what happens there. Again, you know, before checking CNN in the morning when I wake up, I automatically, my, my hand goes for the BBC, you know, Persian side because I want to know what's the latest news in Iran. And then I switch to see what, what CNN has to you know, say about uh, current, current events. So I think that's, that, that's, that's a fact. And yes, unfortunately, we have had these terrible events. Frankly, I think, you know, in, in Iran, we are dealing with a situation where you have a, we have a, a regime that is truly not representative of its citizenry, and the, the people certainly deserve much better than what the Islamic Republic has been able to, you know, to give to them. But as I said, I, for one, do not embrace this, uh, you know, policy of sanctions and so forth because of the collective damage that I think it does for the ordinary citizens. So I think it is part of my moral compass that I need to maintain a degree of distance from uh, whatever government, from whatever uh, media outlets, etc., that is that is out there, because I want to be able to speak my mind as I see fit, be it, you know, the American political establishment, the Iranian political establishment, it doesn't make a difference. I think people like me who are social scientists or are, you know, public intellectuals of a sort, you know, we have this, sort of have this obligation to uh, be there. You know, Jean-Paul Sartre, had something really fascinating to say about the role of intellectuals that I mentioned in one of my books. He said, you know, the role of an intellectual is like that small piece of, you know, a stone that gets caught in your uh, shoes, right? <laughs> you know how it bothers you, uh, that, 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 that piece there? Yeah, yes. The, the role of intellectual should be the same thing, right? You should be able to tickle a society's <laughs> conscience. You should be able mm. to push them push the envelope on them, you know, on, on how they're clearing their conscience cheaply or how they are resorting to stereotypes, simplistic narratives of, of how things are. That's the role I think we need to be, you know, playing. And again, in, in terms of the diaspora, I think this is fantastic because this is a community that uh, has two streams of water, right, coming into this big ocean. So 
So with that, with that, I would say we have the opportunity to take that critical distance and be able to hold our politicians, intellectuals, etc., accountable for the type of narrative that that they that they put out and challenge them when needed, so that we can elevate the level of you know thinking and discourse uh, in our respective community. It's truly a pleasure to get to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Mirzad Borujerdi, director of Virginia Tech School of Public and International Affairs. His latest book, Post-Revolutionary Iran, a political handbook. He joined us from Virginia today. I could talk to him for hours, Dr. Burjardi. He does an amazing, amazing job. Really, it's hard to, it's hard to stay balanced <laughs> and opine about our diaspora. Um, Shia and Reza have been listening in. Yeah. How about that, huh? He was. He's he's extraordinary. Yeah. To be honest, it was so insightful. Shia, I can't really hear Reza. Ah, there, can you hear you. me? That's better. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Pop. I don't know if the yeah, I'm just making sure the humans you, can hear you. You got it, because yeah. I'm talking to the microphone. He was insightful. Right now, he was very yeah. insightful. I'm, I'm, yeah, he was. It's amazing. To say the least. I know. I know. I know. All right. So I have the letters. The, by, by the way, we were supposed to bring Sara in, and but you're still. <laughs> well, you haven't budged. Well, I know you were. You were <laughs> I know. I so, know. I, I'm having a. I, well, I was so engaged with the conversation. Right. So, she, so let me explain to people. So. We have this space, and we we where we're recording here. But and Sarah is in in our larger space, but can't get too close to the studio yeah. because we're trying to observe social distancing, so everybody's That's in their right. own place, and we can't get her close to a microphone. But she's, yeah. but she's we. Um, so I was thinking for letters of the day, at least we would get her voice. We can call her. Do you want to call yeah, her? Yeah, yeah. Let's call her because I'm not leaving the studio. So <laughs> it's six. Hey, Shy is right on oh, it. Look at that. It. Almost like it was prescribed. There we go, yeah. Oh my god, you should be like, why are you calling me? <laughs> Hello? Sara? Hello? Hi, it's us <laughs> in the other room. Jetori. So Sara does all of our response to some of the stuff on YouTube. Merci, Sarajan, for all your work. Hi, Shukran. Um, I work in a social media. I know. Reza Haruz. I know. Sara. Uh, Reza, I think we're going to have to Reza turns off. She's. She's. What? What'd she say? Reza Chi? Reza, off. Let me just explain it. Sara is wondering why Reza occupies the studio and Sara doesn't come in. Next, for sure. Then we'll keep switching it up. Anyway, um, uh, merci Sarajan. Uh, letters of the week. Uh, we're going to do that. Okay. Do you want to stick on the line while I do it? Hello? Oh, Hello? Oh, do you want to stay on the line while we do the letters? Yeah, I can. <laughs> She's like, well, why? why yeah, she picked them herself. Uh, 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 okay. So, um, Kave and Sari. So, our episode five of Rook was uh, featuring Sonos Sotudeh. 
the amazing classical uh, piano player from Vancouver, Kave Ansari, left, left us a message on YouTube. He says, thank you for this interview. I wish the best for Sonoz, although I'm not so sure the struggling culture of Iran can be saved from thousands of miles away. So this is a reference to the fact that Sonoz uh, was saying she hopes through music she can help to restore, yeah. rehabilitate, and celebrate the, the culture of Iran. Um, thank you for that opinion, Kave. This from Marlene Shapkuri uh, on Instagram about the same episode, episode five. Sonoz is a class in her own. Thanks for bringing a world-class pianist into my world in rural Canada. Rook Media accomplished that for me. Thanks. Thank you very much for that, Marlene. This from Turaj Yousefi. Hello, Gian. Thanks for the great interviews. I think within a year you can speak Farsi fluently. And probably you can have the Farsi version of Rook as well. Okay, well, that's true. I probably couldn't do the Dr. Burjardi interview. And, okay, fill the blank. Uh, Shai, did I say something wrong again? Okay, fill, fill the blank. Omidvaram ke ruze khubi. Hastin. Thank you for that, Turaj Yusefi. I fluently to get See, the problem is I start speaking Farsi and you guys immediately start laughing. It's not. It's not helpful. It's really cute. Yeah. That's okay. It's cute. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, neg- uh, and with the letter of the week, Negin Dusti Alavi. Thank you, Gia. So this was on Instagram about episode number six, which was um, Arshid Azarin, who is a doctor in Paris on the front lines working with the COVID-19 uh, situation, got COVID-19 himself, was became infected, recovered, went straight back to the front lines. He's also an incredible piano player. Sarah, I know you're you were a big fan of him, right? And that yeah. interview, yeah. He's pretty inspirational. Thank you, Sarah. That's all. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something about Arshi Nazarin. Um, I, wait, I was waiting for you. I'm asking you what you thought of Arshi Nazarin. Yeah, he's amazing. So, so Negin Dusti Alavi on Instagram says, thank you, Gianna team. Uh, it was wonderful to hear about Dr. Azarin's journey and his great accomplishments in both realms of medicine and music. Negin says, in my opinion, what a good doctor and a good musician have in common is their unique ability to be present in the moment, to detect subtleties, and to merge their repertoire of knowledge and perceptions in order to connect with people at a personal level. Insightful and very well said. Negin you have our letter of the week. Merci. 
Thank you, Sara. Thank you for that. And thanks to Hi, Shia and Reza. In, info at rookmedia.com uh, is a way to reach us or post on any of our platforms. song called Iran Iran that's Muhammad Nuri a piece composed by Muhammad Sarir this is full time for Rook today thank you to our amazing little team that puts this together each week back on Monday for Bollywood to Hollywood and the Iranian diaspora I'm Jiang Gomeshi Mizunbashi سوزان ای شیرین ترین رویای من تو بمان در دل و جان ای ایران ایران گلزار سبز دور از تاراج خزان جور زمان ای مهر رخشان ای روشنگر دنیای من به جهان تو بمان
سبزی سد چمن سرخی خون من سپیدی طلوع سهر به پرچمت نشسته شرح این آشری ننشیند در سخن بمان که تا عبد هستیم به هستی تو بسته ایران ایران دور از دامان پاکت دست دگران بد گوهران ای عشق سوزان ای شیرین ترین رویای من تو بمان در دل و جان ای ایران ایران گلزار سبزت دور از تاراج خزان جور زمان ای مهر رخشان ای روشنگر دنیای من به جهان تو بمان در روح و جان من میمانی ای وطن به زیر پاف تداندلی که بهر تو نلرزد شرح این آشقی ننشیند در سخن که بهر عشق بالای تو همه جهان نیرزد